Hello and welcome to the Women in Tech and Radio podcast. My name is Camille and I'll be your host. I'm a guerrilla marketing manager at David Systems, which is an enterprise software company in audio. We're based in Munich, Germany. I'm very excited about this podcast, which will consist in a series of interviews with great women in tech. So sit back and enjoy. Welcome to this newest episode of Women in Tech and Radio. I'm super happy to welcome Lisa on the episode today. Welcome, Lisa. Hello. So could you present yourself, please? My name is Lisa Hack. I'm an associate lecturer in radio at Goldsmiths and a freelance audio producer. And how did you become a freelance producer? I'm really interested in music. So it's a really big love of mine. So as a kid, I learned music, you know, I kind of went through the, you know, the recorder as everybody does in school onto the guitar and the trumpet and stuff. I did a degree in music at a really nice college called Bretton Hall in Yorkshire. Actually, before I went there, I didn't really know anything about radio. I knew about the BBC and stuff. When I was doing my A-levels, which is the exams you do just before you get into university, I uh, knew that I was interested in sound and saw something that the BBC were doing, the BBC local radio station. They were running a two-week course in sort of radio skills. Uh, so I applied and got into this two-week course, which was great. And it was interviewing skills, learning to record onto a Euro tape recorder, editing tape, making a, a magazine program with a team of, I think there were three of us, four of us on this course with radio producers who, who worked at Radio London. So it was brilliant, actually, because I had no idea about radio. Uh, I'm a big radio listener, music radio listener, but didn't know anything about speech radio. So, so this gave me all those basic skills and I really enjoyed it and it stuck in my mind. So after I finished doing a degree in music, I looked around for radio courses and I found one, which actually I thought was radio production. But when I went for the interview, it was actually radio journalism, but I did do it. Um, it was a one year postgraduate diploma in radio journalism. And that was University West of Scotland, as is now, which was great. It was just one year of doing law, bits of local government and just making loads of mistakes, which is great. It's the best way to learn. And making stuff, interviewing people. It wasn't the most technically best college. So that was actually quite good. There was a limited amount of technology there. So we really had to be experimental in how we managed to make things. There was a real sense of having to really think about how we were producing stuff. Through that, I volunteered at Community Radio, which was a hospital radio station in South Lanarkshire. And I wanted to do a show. So I said, how can I get a show on this station? So I said I would do a jazz program. Now, I like jazz, but I don't know much about it. But for the sake of getting a radio program on the station, I said I'd do a jazz show. So they gave me a two-hour slot. From the back of that, I got back down to London and through contact with the women's radio group at the time, I got chatting to another organization, which is quite similar to the organization I'm involved in now. It was something called Cultural Partnerships, and it was trying to open up access to media for groups which were underrepresented. Uh, and I got chatting to somebody, and they were starting a radio station. They said, oh, do you want to come and produce a series of health programs? And I went, yeah, sure. I wasn't doing anything else. I was volunteering in a charity shop, and then I was going up and producing this series of health programs in association with the, the local council who provided some programming. We had things like a safe sex soap. I made some stuff like a tour of a health food shop because I realized I'd never been in one 
and I didn't know what you would buy in there at the time. And some people were local people who lived in the borough of Hackney and were involved in the regeneration of social housing, which was what the project was built around, were making radio programs, were learning how to make radio programs. So we took some of what they were making, some of what I was making, some of what the council were making, and um, put it all together in half an hour slots called the One Stop Health Shop. So I kind of made this program. But it's quite a long story, but off the back of that, I was applying for jobs at the BBC. And I knew that there was this thing called the studio manager. And I thought, oh, that sounds like what I'd like to do. It sounds quite sort of techy, kind of gadgets and sound and stuff. And I wrote into the BBC and saying, you know, are, are you recruiting studio managers? And I got a very nice letter saying, sorry, we're not recruiting studio managers at this time. And that was 19, uh, 1994, something like that. I applied for a job which was allocating studio managers and I didn't get it. And I applied for the next year and I did all the tests and I didn't get it again, but I asked for feedback. So this man phoned me up and he said, oh, you don't seem upset that you didn't get the job. And I went, well, I thought I did my best and, you know, I just wanted to know what the test results were. And I made some notes and I hung up the phone. And then five minutes later, the phone rang again, and it was him again. His name was Bob. And he was, as it turned out, the head of recruitment services for the BBC when it was still in-house. And he said to me, are you working at the moment? And I said, well, no. And he says, well, my assistant's leaving, and I'm recruiting for a new assistant. Would you like to apply for the job? And I thought, I don't know if I'm qualified to do this. But he said, um, I'm going to fax you over. This is how old it was. Fax you over the job description. I read the job description. It had typing in shorthand, neither of which I can do. I thought, well, I'm not going to get this. And I went for the interview and I got nine months short contract as his PA in recruitment services, which was a really good place to start because you got a really good overview of the organization. And one of the first things he did was arrange for me to go and sit in the gallery for the one o'clock news on BBC One, the main news bulletin of the day, which you know I found fascinating. And that was my, my way in. And it was a good way to see who did what and how all the departments fit together and see all the different job ads coming in. And lo and behold, one of the job ads that came in was trainee studio managers recruitment. And I was like, this is the thing I wanted to do. This is the thing. So I applied for it and got in. So I got recruited to work at the World Service. And I didn't know much about the World Service at all. At that time, it was going out in 46 languages and I only speak English. But it was a great time. There's a great amount of training, three weeks out, um, residential training, and then another two weeks at Bush House at the time, just learning and getting coordinated and working in tape which, you know, it was quite difficult. We always said we should have the Studio Manager Olympics, you know, how fast can you lace up a tape machine? You never changed your mind, basically, with the Studio Manager position? That's all you ever wanted? Because with your position as an assistant to HR, you must have encountered a lot of people, lots of different positions, lots of different departments. No, I didn't. To sort of go back a bit, I knew I wanted to do the job. And when I was in community radio, I met other studio managers there. And I have single-sided deafness, so I don't hear in one ear. And I was born like that. So I was told by the studio managers I'd never get a job as a studio manager, which made me even more determined to get a job as a studio manager. Of course. It's, it's interesting because I applied. And then when I did get the job, I thought, well, I don't know what's going to happen here. You know, because you have to set a hearing test. The thing about hearing tests is that you, you have to test each ear individually, otherwise your other ear picks up what's going through, whatever you're wearing. That's kind of what happened with me. 
But I basically had done the job, but in a community radio sense of the word. But the, the difficulty is convincing other people you can do the job because they'll go, well, how can you do that? And you can't hear this. It's like, well, no, but you have no idea how I make sense of the world or how anybody with a hearing impairment makes sense of the world. It's, it, it's really, really different. I suppose after a couple of years, I did talk to people about it. And by which point, you know, I'd already been doing the job and doing it really well, which, you know, sounds like it's really not very modest, but I had been doing it really well. And the majority of world service programs uh, go out, were going out in mono at that time. And, you know, I just work around things. I've just always worked around it. I mean, if you have any kind of disability, you, you learn to work around it. So people already knew my work and knew that I could do things and knew that I was good at certain things. So it just became about that. And then maybe they were surprised about certain things. And people could be really weird about sort of hearing impairments and start shouting at you, which is deeply, deeply unhelpful. But most of the time, it's not really important. If I'm working, I'm working and I, I make sure I can hear what I need to hear. But in terms of the work, I really, really got into the work and I was what they called an Asia, Asian Pacific specialist where we were in teams, but I worked across programming for Africa, Middle East. And it was fantastic camaraderie, really, just hands-on doing lots of stuff. And it was kind of shifts and uh, working in Bush House and working closely with production teams. And seeing the change of technology, I think I'm lucky enough to have seen work with the World Service to have gone through tape and then going through the Go Digital project. Uh, at one point, we were working on you know several different digital systems and tape at the same time, and then a mix of different analog desks and different digital desks. And the variety of work I was doing at that time was really good because as well as doing live programs, pre-recordings that I was started to do travel so I started to do duty trips around the world mostly in Asia and Africa and user acceptance testing on bureaus so BBC Delhi BBC Dhaka in Bangladesh and BBC Karachi in Pakistan the three of the bureaus that I worked on to test and yeah we, we moved BBC Delhi bureau overnight uh, and it wasn't quite ready the first time I went, so I had to come back home and then go there. And there were the DHD desks and I hadn't really seen them before. So it was kind of, okay, me and my colleague, let's work out how this desk works. Let's, you know, figure out what's the most useful layout for our program makers. What's going to make this desk easy to use when they have a studio manager and they had local studio managers and I helped train them. And what will be a useful setup for program makers when they just have to run into a studio and do a quick live. So it was a different way of, of thinking about the technology and having kind of worked on both sides, on the sort of tech side, but having kind of been a presenter and producer, uh, an actual making programs, I could see it from both sides. If I'm presenting and if I'm focusing on the script, what do I want under my hands immediately? Where should those things be? What are the most useful functions that I can have? So it's really helpful to to have experience of both things. And then you can explain tech to somebody who, who might be just a little bit scared of tech, really. But it sounds like you had, a, you had a blast when you were at the BBC. Where did you go freelance afterwards? I've not long come out of the BBC. I spent 20 years in the BBC. And I left in the summer of 2017 to try new stuff, really. I think the role of studio manager sort of changed in that there was less scope for travel and projects and things like that. And I thought, actually, there's more things I want to do that are beyond this role that I'm doing now. So I made that decision to leave and I embarked on a master's in digital journalism at Goldsmiths College to sort of broaden my skill set a bit 
and update sort of journalism skills. So, you know, that included media law and ethics and looking at sort of, you know, the, the digital world, uh, the new tools that journalists are using and the, the fact that, you know, journalists today are not just expected to do just radio, just television, just online. It's a whole mixture of those things and thinking about how you can effectively, you know, treat a story in, in different ways. And it also enabled me to do a bit more video. So we did mobile journalism using smartphones. And actually, because I can do sound, I got, you know, a- awarded the highest ever mark for that module for that course. It's something that people don't always realise that, you know, sound is so important um, with video and film and stuff. So, yeah, I mean, kind of going back into an educational environment was really a huge change. And while I was there, it came up that they were short of a radio tutor. So I took up that position, which is a new thing for me. And it's first years and it's sort of an introduction to radio skills. And that's been great. It's been great working in that environment and talking to the students and finding out what they listen to, why they listen to it. And observe how they use the technology, actually, in terms of when they research their stories and things. So it's interesting. They'll reach for their phone before they'll look at the computer in front of them. So at the moment, I suppose it's year three. I see it as a five-year sort of transitional period into changing my career around now. So it's year three, and it's the first full year that I would have been freelance. So I, I studied, I did my MA over, over two years, and, you know, was just having a rest from full-time work, having done it for 20 years. So it's sort of a uh, wind down. And the other thing that I've been doing is volunteering as an organiser on the multi-track audio fellowship which is in its second year there are eight of us who run it and joby waldman of reduced listening sort of pulled us together and we started meeting up and saying well you know we have the situation in the professional audio environment where there's a certain kind of person who who is working in it there's not a, a diversity of voices and stories coming through why is that what can we do about it how can we improve access to audio and we started meeting every two weeks and we formulated an idea about what we wanted to try and do and we came up with a series of values what we wanted to do we thought about how we were going to do it we spoke to companies about getting involved in offering one month paid internship to fellows we came up with a training program covered lots of skills and we ran it last autumn over two months and there's some of our fellows are working on BBC commissions at the moment others have been in talks with certain other commissions that might be coming up uh, and it's uh, sort of an ongoing support so we continue to, to support those fellows via whatsapp or a group if they have any questions they pop up and we're gearing up for Multitrack 2020 and we've got feedback from our fellows, feedback from the companies we work with, feedback from ourselves within the group to work out what went well, what could have been better, what can we do. It's been really good. We had a lot of shout outs at the Audio Production Awards, which was great. My role within it is that I run social media accounts and I do outreach. So I go out and just to try and encourage more people in because I felt that I got into audio got into radio because of outreach yeah I suppose I wanted to get involved with it because I just think that that throughout my career in terms of gender balance there was quite a 50-50 balance in terms of studio managers and I think the reason for that is a lot of studio managers at the time I was recruited at 
if you had music skills, that was a bonus. If you came out of theatre, that was a bonus. So that was seen as very important for a studio management role because you might be working on news, but you might be working on drama or you might be working on music programmes. I think there was a change in how they recruited. And I remember talking to the recruitment manager about this because I had helped with the shortlisting, was that they couldn't afford to advertise in The Guardian or you know, the big newspapers for the job. So they advertised in, it was, I don't know, some small radio anorak type magazine. And suddenly they found that the number of applicants from women fell a lot. And the demands of working 24 hours a day, seven days a week, you know, obviously suits some people more than others. So if you are a parent, that's going to be really difficult. Jobs can then kind of get skewed towards a particular kind of demographic and you don't get the diversity that's in there. Generally, in the tech and the radio industry, women face some sort of gender inequality or something, but you said that you didn't really face that. Or did you? The thing about discrimination, there's overt discrimination and then there's sort of, I'm going to say minor discrimination, but there may be th the way that certain things are done which end up being discriminatory. So, I mean, an example of that is the height you set mixing desks, for example. If you set out equipment in a certain way that favours taller people who have long limbs over those of us who are a little bit smaller and then have difficulties in reaching certain things. So, you know, you can think about that. But the way we've got the technology now, you can actually think about that. So things end up being discriminatory on that basis so there are ways of working around differences between people and there are sometimes question marks you couldn't specifically put put your finger on the fact that you're being discriminated in one way or the other i don't know if i would have detected sexism do you think it was also bbc related because you mentioned that when you were there the number of roles was quite uh, equal between genders So do you think the BBC was working for gender equality? I mean, they are. When we think about diversity, we only ever think about gender equality and we don't think about all the other things, all the other differences that people might have. And I think that, you know, being a person who is a woman, who's part of the LGBT community, who has sort of uh, Indo-Caribbean background, who has a hidden disability, all of those things feed into the person that I am. And it would be hard for me to say, oh, this was because I was a woman, because I, I just don't know. It'd be hard for me to pinpoint why that might be. People might make assumptions about my skills, but it might not be based specifically on gender. You know, it, it, it's really, really hard. I can't divide myself into those different categories. I mean, the good thing about the World Service is it was fantastic working with people from all over the world and learning about those places and those cultures and being able to travel to those places that I never would have gone to otherwise, like Mauritania or going to Gabon or going to Equatorial Guinea. You know, these are places that I never would have dreamed as a kid that I would have gone to, but I went to these places and have fantastic stories and that was really, really good. So, yeah, I think that, that the BBC has what would be interesting is to bring all these little siloed groups into one. So if you're somebody who's like me, who thinks, well, actually, I could be in BBC Pride, I could be in BBC Embrace, which was the old Black and Asian forum, or, you know, I could be in BBC Ability. But why do I have to choose which bit I have to go? Yeah, I agree. Did you create some invisible barriers, for instance, because of your earring impairment? Did you ever think, oh, 
I couldn't do that or because you were a woman or because you were part of the LGBT community? I don't think I did. I encountered some other people who put barriers on what they thought I would be able to do. I mean, I definitely remember encountering a teacher. I remember sort of saying as a sort of young kid, as you would, oh, I don't hear in one ear. And this teacher said to me, oh, that's interesting because usually deaf children aren't clever. That's a smart teacher there. How can you be a teacher and think that and impose that view on somebody like that? I don't think it imposed a barrier on what I thought I could do. It certainly made me think carefully about talking to people about it. So, yeah, I don't think, well, I hope not. I don't think I have. I don't think I have put restrictions on, in, in terms of that and actually going off and doing this master's. I do believe in lifelong learning. I do think, even if that's something really small, you know, cooking a new dish or taking up something, go to evening classes. You know, I've been to evening classes for lots of different things. Teaching, it's a two-way process, so... I'm teaching, but I'm learning from my students all the time. So usually I ask if you have any tip for any young woman or woman who wants to start a career in the tech and radio industry. But I think I should start being more inclusive and just ask if you have a, a tip for anyone who wants to start in the radio and tech industry. I think my tip for getting into the tech and radio industry is that there are far more interesting jobs in that area than you would know about and I would say if you're in the UK and you can get to Radio TechCon definitely try and come along and find out more about it because that's such a wide area so even I was at an event recently and talking to uh, a young person about broadcast actually and They, they had IT skills, so you might be interested in computing, but then tech and radio, increasing use of kind of networking and all that kind of stuff. It's, there's so many areas within broadcast and radio that use lots and lots of different skills. You might be really good at problem solving. It's excellent. Problem solving, ideal for this kind of area of work. I think curiosity, you know, if you've got a local radio station, go and have a look around the local radio station. One of the things I did as a kid, I think about 17, was I wrote to the sound engineer of my favorite band because I knew they were in town and I said that I wanted to work in sound and could I come and have a look? And he wrote a letter back and I went to the sound check. Ask, they can only say no or they won't reply. And it was great. It was like there was this massive sound desk. It was brilliant. And he was great. And he explained how the setup worked live. So talk to people social media is pretty good at that kind of thing there's a really nice network of, of people online you can ask things people are really happy to share their stories and skills in terms of well this is how I did it if you have got time to go and volunteer at a community radio station or a hospital radio station find out how things work internet radio stations loads of them around And just just ask. There might be a, a, an engineer or a station technical engineer who might give you a bit of time to explain what's going on. YouTube is an excellent resource for all kinds of things these days. Wish I'd had YouTube when I was growing up. Well, thank you for this. And you're a very good storyteller, so I really didn't have much to do this time. <laughs> Did you have any other questions? Literally, I will. I will just talk and talk unless there's something. No, I, I had some questions, but I was just crossing them off um, as we went along. <laughs> It's perfect. 
do you want to do you want to add anything the thing to remember is that just like the way that we all see colors differently we all hear differently and unfortunately we design things for people who hear in the perfect way and we need to just be a bit more kind of inclusive about it and i i, I suppose i suppose because i went through good bbc training we were always taught about making things monocompatible and thinking about who was listening and what they were listening on and as we get ever more devices that people are listening on are they going to be watching on a tv will they have a sound bar are they listening on their headphones are they listening just through the little speaker on their phone are they listening on a laptop you really really have to think about i know this is going to get better as we get sort of object based broadcasting and stuff like that and you know you it'll detect what kind of mix that you're going to hear but until that becomes a reality for most people it's really important for us to think about that kind of side of things and i think for both sides there are people who are making sort of content to think about the technology and technologists to really think about people i think the area that i enjoy is the bit that sort of sits in the middle and having an understanding in, of both worlds and sort of explaining both sides of it there's another really good story about this actually when we were testing new broadcasting house bbc new broadcasting house um prior to the first program there which was the burmese service 2012 we were testing the studios and there was a cough key for the microphones and some of the engineers who had been putting all the kit into the studios were very excited by the fact that so when the microphones are open okay they have a talkback key so they can hit their button they can talk back to the studio but when the microphones were open they were saying oh this is really good because actually when the microphones open when they hit the talkback key it becomes a cough key and cuts their microphone and they thought this was fantastic and we were like no I was like, what do you mean? It's it's great. And I was saying, well, but how are they going to talk back to the studio? I said, but they don't want to talk back to the studio because their mic's open. I said, they will want to talk back to the studio because uh, they might be doing a live phone interview and then they'll need to hit the talk back to say, how many minutes do you want this interview to be? Or um, I don't think he's very, you know, this person is very good or, you know, some other message. So they just didn't think about it. So the importance of understanding what either side is trying to do is really really key within broadcast otherwise you get something like that. Yeah, it's just about bridging both worlds basically. It's about bridging both worlds. My joke was the difference between a, a producer and a studio manager is that the producer thinks everything's going to work and the studio manager thinks that nothing's going to work. <laughs> But yeah, thanks again for taking the time and joining today. No, no, that's that's fine. It's it's been yeah, it's been enjoyable. And we'll see you guys for the next episode. Bye.